Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, it's June 5th, and it has been an exhausting, frightening, and incredibly inspiring 11 days since the death of George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man who was killed by a white police officer in Minneapolis, kicking off protests around the United States, Europe, and elsewhere, the likes of which were almost unimaginable two weeks ago. The tech industry has also been impacted by frustration around race and police brutality and more generally racial inequality. In fact, Facebook has been in the news a lot this week because of its stance in disseminating some of what's been happening. Alex, what's been going on? Facebook has faced a lot of criticism from its employees this week for allowing posts by President Trump that many believed provoked violence or were outright false or both. One of President Trump's tweets was, when the looting starts... The shooting starts, which was an echo of something that segregationist George Wallace said in the 60s. A group of Facebook employees walked out, three prominent Facebook executives resigned, and at an all-hands meeting, Mark Zuckerberg faced a lot of criticism for the way he handled the incident. One of the main criticisms was that there didn't seem to be a process and that Facebook's policies had been violated. Zuckerberg said that he had thoroughly examined the issue, and yet there was only one black person involved in the decision. According to the Post article, many Facebook employees believe the company's out of touch, particularly because only 4% of the company's employees are African-American and only 3% of its executives are black. That is astonishingly low, considering it's got 48,000 employees. One might think if it does broaden its employee base through this remote work initiative that Mark Zuckerberg talked about a couple of weeks ago, it could broaden that base of employees and encourage a more diverse workforce. But his stance is certainly going to dissuade a lot of people who might have wanted to work for the company. Also, what I think is interesting is how little impact the share price has seen because of all of this. It started the week at $228 per share, and it right now is trading at $230 per share. So it's sort of like unless Facebook shareholders start dumping the stock on mass or people start quitting on mass, I don't see why Zuckerberg would feel compelled to change his position on anything. Yeah, it's hard to know what is going through investors' minds these days, especially given the fact that the stock market is moving upwards despite coronavirus and the George Floyd protests. Mm -hmm. But I think that the only way Facebook is going to change is if users start canceling their accounts en masse. And so far, that hasn't happened. Some investors, meanwhile, say they are determined to change things. The venture firm Andreessen Horowitz on Wednesday announced in a blog post that it's launching a fund designed to invest in underrepresented and underserved founders. It's starting with a $2.2 million donation from the firm's partners, and apparently it will be invested in a small group of seed stage startups in the first year and will expand in size going forward. There was a little bit of controversy around this particular initiative. Anderson Horowitz has historically been very engaged with the black community, but I think some people were sort of surprised that this was maybe a smaller effort. And I think it's partly because it came on the heels of a much larger announcement by the Japanese conglomerate SoftBank, which earlier on Wednesday had said it was launching an opportunity growth fund that will only invest in companies led by founders and entrepreneurs of color, and that it is going to initially start with $100 million. That's a lot of money. 
But again, as has been sort of the theme of this week, there's been pushback on that as well. Questions around whether SoftBank has ever really been focused on diversity in the past. I think the big knock against it, as pointed out in a CNBC story, is that the amount pledged is 0.1% of the amount of SoftBank's vision fund, which the company started deploying in 2017. It has $98.6 billion in committed capital. It has deployed $75 billion into 88 companies. And ultimately, I think it only invested in one founder who was black, who is Robert Refkin, a former Goldman Sachs banker who is the CEO of Compass. So I think people are excited about the initiative, but also a little bit hesitant to give SoftBank and anyone else too much credit for their largesse. Honestly, $2.2 million sounds like money that Mark Andreessen could find in his couch. Well, I think that was the reaction of a lot of people. I had readers who wrote to me and said, Connie, you shouldn't be highlighting this in the newsletter. It's really less than a typical seed round. People on Twitter were being really uncivil, frankly, about the fund and whether or not it was the right size and how much it will grow. We should note here that the fund is expected to grow with donations and matching. Either way, it just underscores what a very sensitive topic this has become, including in Silicon Valley. Connie, I know that you put a lot of work this week into a story about LPs and Black Lives Matter. I heard it went over like a lead balloon. (laughs) Yes, basically, I didn't hear a lot of feedback about it. And I think it's possibly because it seems impractical, but not undoable, I hope. So I wrote a piece that basically suggested that any limited partner, meaning public university, hospital system, pension fund that receives public funding should have to insist that its venture investors, who it backs, dedicate some portion of their funds to underrepresented founders, meaning either people of color or women. So the idea is VCs today already sign away their rights to invest in firearms, alcohol, tobacco, when managed capital on behalf of these funds, universities, hospital systems, etc. My suggestion is that we move beyond targets and develop actual mandates. So rather than wait for the venture capitalists to sort of organically develop less homogenous organizations, their limited partner agreements be altered, which sounds extreme, but studies have shown that diversity pays dividends. I just think that the VCs don't really have a lot of data to go on. And so it's sort of a theoretical exercise for them at this point, which is why they dedicate small amounts. And they're sort of, you know, frankly, token amounts. But if this whole thing were institutionalized, I think people would, A, be forced to make these investments work because they would represent a more substantial percentage of their overall portfolio. And B, because they would be making these investments work and they'd be spending more time with these founders, the data would reflect that their returns aren't hampered by these investments in any way. The venture industry's diversity and inclusion problem extends up through the LP ranks. Charles Hudson, who is a prominent black venture capitalist, echoed the point today in a separate Business Insider piece where he talked about the fact that limited partners have not made diversity a priority. They haven't pressured mainstream venture firms to invest in black or other founders of color. And instead, they've seemingly outsourced the problem of, of investing in people of color to the very few black or Latino-led firms like his own. Hudson said, quote, if the default is most of the money that goes to this class of entrepreneurs is going to come from people of color and people of color in the investing world don't have much capital, you're not going to change anything. And he's exactly right. I agree. But I guess the issue is, do you constrain these funds and mandate that they have to invest a certain percentage 
I agree that that would force VCs to change, but I believe that it might also really negatively impact returns because anytime VCs are constrained to invest in one thing, in my opinion, the performance suffers. For example, funds that were focused solely on nanotechnology or solely on green technology didn't really perform as well as firms that had a much broader mandate. So I agree that this is a huge problem, and I believe that you may be right that we need to mandate some kind of change, but I'm not sure if this is exactly the right approach. Well, to your point quickly before we move on, it's exactly because funds that are focused narrowly on something don't tend to work out very well that I think these broader base funds need to incorporate more diversity into what they're doing. Right now, what we're seeing is, again, to Charles's point, Firms like his that are doing a lot of the heavy lifting and are investing almost exclusively in underrepresented founders. You can imagine if a general catalyst or a Kleiner or a benchmark or a Sequoia, which has bets all over the world across all different industries, spent more time on underrepresented founders as part of their portfolio approach. Before we move on, in other related news, Alexis Ohadian, the co-founder and former CEO of Reddit, stepped down from the company's board today and called on it to fill his position with a black board member. He also vowed to use all future gains from his Reddit stock to support the black community and to, quote, curb racial hate. Ohanian, who is married to Serena Williams, tweeted, I'm saying this as a father who needs to be able to answer his black daughter when she asks, what did you do? Reddit has a rocky track record around issues of race. Earlier this week, Ellen Powell, ex-CEO of Reddit, criticized the current CEO for his response to President Trump's tweets. And there have been numerous subreddits that have fostered hate speech. Of course, there was other news this week. Topping the headlines yet again, the giant India telecom Geo Platforms picking up some new checks. Yesterday, it was announced that Mubadala, the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund, has officially invested in Geo Platforms. Also, Silver Lake which had written an earlier check, just invested another $600 million. This on the heels of a bunch of other American investors, including Facebook, which have funded the company recently. What's interesting is this week there was noise about Amazon and Google securing a bigger part of the market as well. Amazon specifically, as reported by Reuters, was looking at a company called Bharti Airtel, which is the third largest telecom operator in India. And it's apparently an early stage talks to buy a 5% stake that would cost it around $2 billion dollars. Meanwhile, shares of the second biggest telecom in India, Vodafone Idea, have surged by more than 50% since the Financial Times reported earlier this week that Google is exploring snapping up 5% of that company. Interestingly, Google is also reportedly talking about possibly acquiring a stake in Geo. So lots of stuff happening all at once. All of this frenzied investment activity is very confusing. Hasn't anyone noticed that the world is going to hell? <laughs> Even Elon Musk, who made us all so proud last week when his SpaceX was the first commercial rocket company to send two astronauts to the International Space Station, is back to his old antics this week. I really don't know who needs a Twitter intervention more, Trump or Musk. Yesterday, Elon Musk blasted Jeff Bezos of Amazon because Amazon's self-publishing unit had rejected a manuscript by a guy named Alex Berenson, who is a former New York Times writer and an author of spy thrillers. 
Berenson had written a book about the coronavirus and how it really wasn't such a big deal. It's not exactly clear how Musk glommed on to Berenson's cause, but he said, this is insane at Jeff Bezos and accused Amazon of being a monopoly. These two are bitter rivals in the space game. Of course, Musk has SpaceX and Bezos has Blue Origin, so there's really no love lost. In addition, Jeff Bezos has said some pretty nasty things about Musk's interest in Mars. At one point, he said at a talk at the Wings Club, my friends who want to move to Mars, I say, do me a favor, go live on the top of Mount Everest for a year first and see if you like it because it's a garden paradise compared to Mars. Amazon's also in the electric car game, so I'm sure that pisses off Musk as well. I think in addition to Rivian, a Detroit-based electric vehicle company that it's backed, it's got bets in a lot of different self-driving technologies. Musk can't like that very much. And that's it for the news. Next up, our interview with Amy Errett, CEO and founder of Madison Reed and a venture partner at True Ventures. But first, a word from our sponsor. Eighty-eight percent of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte recommend investing into art, and it makes sense. Art has outperformed the S&P by over 180% since 2000, with virtually no correlation according to a 2019 Citibank study. But how can you access this insiders-only asset class generally reserved for billionaires? With Masterworks.io, an exclusive investment platform for multi-million dollar artworks from artists whose works have appreciated at 8 to 30% annually, get paid when the painting sells or flip your shares on their secondary market. It's that simple. If you're looking to protect your portfolio from risk, take a look at real, tangible assets like art. You can invest in paintings by artists like Monet, Warhol, and Banksy today. Sign up and tell them Strictly VC sent you to skip their 15,000-person waitlist. Amy Errett, thank you so much for joining us today. I have to say, I keep hearing about Madison Reed, a company that I'm familiar with, but I've been hearing more about during this crisis. How are you doing? I'm great. First of all, thank you very much for having me today. I'm excited to talk to you. Oh, no, it's our pleasure entirely. So, Amy, you and I have talked a number of times in the past. I'm actually realizing it's been a few years since we were in touch, but just because we have a lot of investors who listen to this program, I wanted to just catch up quickly on Madison Reed's funding. I remember $12 million, around $16 million, $25 million, then early last year, a $50 million series, maybe D round. I just Correct. wondered, have I, have I missed anything? How much is nope. the company uh, together? I think something like 125 something like that. Yeah. Okay, great. And then in terms of employees, how many of those do you have now? We have about 300 altogether split between 100 that are in our headquarters in San Francisco and then 200 in our color bar stores. Okay, great. And so when we'd spoken last, you were just beginning to open up these color bar stores, which are actual storefronts where you have licensed colorists working on your customers. How many did you eventually open of those? When we closed them during uh, the big, you know, COVID-19, we had 12. We are reopening them now with 20. So we had eight that were sitting 
to be opened that never got opened in March, April, and May. And then we will end the year with 25, and we are probably on track to open another 20 next year. Incredible. So these are all U.S.-based? They are, yes. And they're just scattered around the U.S.? They are in hubs, so it's a great question. They are in uh, hubs that we have selected based on the demographics of the women that live in those hubs and what we know from our online business. So they are in Northern California. Obviously, we're headquartered here. They're New York City. There's Dallas. There's Houston. And then there's the D.C. sort of Virginia, Maryland corridor. We're reopening with Atlanta, adding more in Dallas and Houston. And then by the end of this year, we will start Miami and we will also be in Denver. Amy, the last I read, the company was doing around $50 million and 78% gross margins. And the business post-COVID is growing at 10 to 12x what it was. Can you comment on the financial metrics of the company and how you guys are doing? Yeah, absolutely. So just a clarify a couple things. The product margin of the business is in excess of 80%, meaning the actual product. So I just want to be always clear. The gross margin of the business being fully loaded is 60%, not 78%. So I'd be really happy if it was 78, Alex, but it's 60. As far as the growth, the growth has been amazing. 300,000 subscribers now. We are way ahead of 2x the number that you just mentioned will be profitable the second half of this year. That's phenomenal. So obviously you've captured a lot of customers that typically go to a salon where their hair color is concocted while they sit. And so you've added subscribers during this time as well because I know you have a, you have both subscribers and you have people who buy the product on a one-off basis. What percentage of your consumers are subscribers at this point? It's a difficult question, right? Because it moves from day to day to day. So let, mm-hmm. let me just go into a little bit of the market dynamics. 52% of women in the U.S. color exclusively at home. 48% go to salons, some of which go to our color bars. Mm-hmm. And then 25% do both. They're called dualist. So they're excessively gray or they want to stretch out salon appointments to include a haircut. And so that maybe they need to color every four weeks, but they're coloring in a salon every eight to 10 weeks. And in between, they do their hair at home. During the surge, the numbers did tip in the direction of 70% of the people that were coming to us were salon goers because they had no other place to go. The super good news of this is that we are retaining an enormous amount of them. If you think about the cycle, we're now about 10 weeks out from the beginning. So the average woman orders from us every six weeks. And so we're already seeing the behavior of those new cohorts to actually be in excess of the behavior of older cohorts. And then in addition to it, we have people that you can buy a single box or subscribe And so in the buying of the single box, what we call one-timers, those people that came to us are buying at 2x the rate that they ever have. So the growth in the business is very sustainable growth that we're seeing in early 10-week cohorts. Startlingly sustainable cohorts compared to what typical D2C businesses see. And that's partly from what I understand because you've reassigned your colorists, correct? So rather than working in the color bars, they are now helping customers online. And can I ask, did you have to do any sort of layoffs or have you been able to redeploy everybody? 
We've redeployed everyone. The caveat is some folks, and I think in our case it was seven, decided themselves to go on FMLA or decided that they had kids at home and they couldn't even work on a distributed work basis. But we have not done any furloughing. What we did was we closed all of our color bars around March 15th, 16th, throughout the country. So we didn't wait. We just went ahead and closed them. We moved all of our in-store colorists to our call center, which was already all certified licensed colorists, because our sale is a very technical sale. As I say, we're the only company in the world that's in beauty, but we have to get you over the sheer terror to use our product, right? Because every woman in the world has at least five bad hair stories. And so, you know, so we put a lot of what I'd consider to be belt and suspenders around the advice, because uh, the most important thing for a customer at Madison Reed is to get the color right. You got one shot, which is to get that first box to her or get her to come into the color bar and have the first experience be exactly right. So we moved these other people to that call center. Thank goodness we did because our volume was insane. And we took what was probably eight weeks of training and kind of condensed it down into about 10 days. Had a run on Chromebooks that we had to buy and send and uh, also get headsets to everyone at home teach them about all of the technology support in, the, in customer service, which is very different than the skills you'd use working in a store. And away we went. It's worked out really, really well. We are reopening stores. We reopened Texas four weeks ago for retail only pickup. And today is our first day in doing what we call sensible scheduling. No more than two chairs of applying color in our Texas stores starting today. And then we have a whole schedule of how we're rolling out the other color bars first with retail only and then with sensible scheduling. And then we don't, we don't know when we'll go back to every chair. We have to keep watching this carefully. And so as we're moving people off the call center, we're also flexing up. Some people have opted to not go back into stores and want to stay in the call center like that job, which is awesome. It gives us a lot of flexibility to flex up and down. And then we'll have to sort of fill in the gaps as more stores open. And Amy, every state has its own approach to reopening. How institutionalized are your processes? So for example, in Texas, do the colorists have to wear masks? And will this be uniform throughout the chains as they reopen? We are taking the most stringent guidelines of any state and laying that across the entire system. Even if a state says you don't have to wear a mask or the client doesn't need to wear a mask, we're wearing masks and our clients are wearing masks. So we have taken an approach that we are taking the most stringent state guidelines and applying it to all of our colored bars, regardless of where they're located. And even in retail only, we would not let uh, more than one person in the store at a time and they had to wear a mask. And we had a little bit of pushback about that. But we just said, hey, if you'd like to come in, we're happy to give you a mask. If not, tell us what you want and we will get the bag together and then bring it outside and leave it, you know, six feet apart from you down on the ground and you can pick it up. And we didn't get pushback from that, but we got a little pushback about wearing masks. And I suspect as we move into services, some people don't want to do that. That's okay. Then we're not the right place for people to come, if that's true. And, and here's the reason why I want to be crystal clear that our clients and our team member safety comes first. 
Amy, last year you announced a plan to roll out 600 stores, 100 which would be operated by the company and 500 that were franchised. Is it fair to say that those plans are on hold and are they perhaps permanently on hold? Do you ever foresee a time when you will go back to that plan of opening up 600 stores? So they are on hold. We were just starting to sell franchises in February. We had actually our first set of meetings with potential franchisees. This happened and we made a decision right now. We're pushing that decision off. We have not decided whether that's final or not, I think, through all of this. They say I'm a mature CEO, so Alex and Connie, I think it means old. (laughs) And one of the things I've learned in maybe my, you know, wisdom in this has been big, broad decisions strategically for long periods of time right now aren't the smartest thing a CEO can do because the world is just in flux. We know that our company-owned stores are on track, and we will open 100, potentially 125 or 50 of those over time. These are only U.S.-based. We also know that we have a global opportunity. And I really, just in all candor, I don't know what the answer will be about franchising until we know more. We don't want to be the partner of somebody who's taking 401k money to open something where there's so much uncertainty. That's just not what our brand stands for. So right now it's on hold. Amy, looking out, what would you like to see happen for Madison Reed in the next five years, including in terms of financing? You don't hear about a lot of hair color companies going public. You do hear about a lot of very rich acquisitions by established personal care companies. At the same time, why not go public and perhaps yeah. you know, get your um, next round from public shareholders who understand yep. what you're working on and, and yep. want to be part of that sort of global expansion plan? This is a massive category that has been widely overlooked. When you look at the size of the prize, $15 billion alone in the US with repetitive purchase patterns, it's a consumable product that's kind of a one and done, if you will. I mean, I'm an investor, right? Before this, I was a GP and opened and ran Mavron's office in the Bay Area. And I am a partner at True, so I do invest as well in part of the investment team. So I'm actually just commenting with that part of my hat on 80 plus percent of our revenues are recurring in this company. The color bars, we're the only people that have the ability to use our own product, right? So let me give you a scenario. Most women going to a salon today, the stylist is never going to give them the product. They're never going to say, oh, you're going on vacation. Take this home with you. My story is, you know, I live in San Francisco. I have to go to Las Vegas sometime. That will happen again, I suspect. My roots are showing. I didn't get a chance to cover them. I use Madison Reed, and now I can walk into a Madison Reed color bar and get the same consistency, the same exact color that I could take home. Someone's going to apply for me. That is a game changer in this industry, and I mean it. We are the only people that are agnostic to whether you want us to color your hair, whether you want to do it at home, whether you want to do both, whether you want to buy it at Alta. That's the only wholesale relationship we have today with 1,200 Alta stores and Alta.com. Only hair color that Alta has in the stores. And so when people ask me, what do I want in the next five years? We are going to disrupt both the salon side and the terrible box on the shelf side of the business. This is a massive company we're building. Lots of venture people didn't get this. She's coloring her hair. That's the thing she's thinking about when she's at home on Zoom calls, right? And if she goes back to headquarters, she's still thinking about coloring her hair. 
This is a standard thing that women do. I just think in general, we are going to really surprise people at the trajectory of the company and the consistency of the revenue stream and the margins and the repetitive nature and the customer satisfaction. We have a very high net promoter score. You know, we worked hard for the quality. And then the other thing that I left out, we have the lowest chemical profile of any product. The trend is there. Women want to know what's in their products. They're not interested in toxicity in anything. Speaking about differentiation, you have this historic focus on natural ingredients. You've also created a series of tools like an online quiz and an augmented reality feature that allows customers to try on new colors. This industry has been long dominated by L'Oreal and Clairol yes. and, and others. Do you see them moving in your direction? And what are they missing about this that uh, you guys believe gives you that differentiation? So... You are absolutely right that there's been a lot of movement in technology enablement within beauty, but in other categories. For instance, skincare, you know, matching foundation color, I think in hair color, we've pushed the edge of that envelope and we're continuing to push the edge of that envelope. We actually built all of our own proprietary technology and, you know, 30 million hair profiles in our algorithm, right? So the algorithm's pretty smart at predicting your color. We also built all of our own technology in our stores. And that's very unique because the interaction that we needed to establish was if Connie comes into our San Francisco store and gets her hair colored and then decides to order online, your classic store retail.com relationship is disconnected, right? That information is never connected to each other. Where in our case, because we build all of our own technology, Connie comes into a store, she goes home, she gets on her phone, she puts in her same email address, and we say, Connie, we just put Luca Brown on your hair, click, would you like to order one? Or here's the gloss that goes with that, or the color depositing mask blah, 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 blah. So our technology and our CRM is integrated across our channels. L'Oreal and Unilever, Henkel, all of these people have the capacity to build technology. That's not the differentiator. The difference is that if you look at L'Oreal, 85% of L'Oreal's business is selling tubes of color into stylists in a salon. It is not a direct relationship with a consumer. The direct relationship with the consumer is the box sitting at Walgreens, which is a very small percentage of their business. The margins are so thin because of the pricing. Remember, they're charging $10, I'm charging $25. So it's hard for them to move from $10 up. We did a slight price increase last year and didn't lose any clients. So the the point is that our margins are different from them in the at-home box. But when it comes to the salon, It's a distribution issue that's a problem. The professional channel for them is a conflict for them to innovate directly based on technology or otherwise to the direct consumer. So just to clarify, what percentage of their revenue comes from salons? 85. Okay, and 77,000 beauty salons have closed because of COVID. So must be a huge hit on their business. I think that they just had earnings. They were down, I think, 12% or something. It wasn't dramatic. Look, I have endearing and deep respect for these companies. They are the behemoths. I do not take it for granted that they are smart and they can decide that they're going to come after us in different ways. 
and that's fine. I'll take the customer service, the relationship to the client, the product innovation, the way that we lead with mobile technology first any single day. And it'd be very hard for L'Oreal to open their own color bars. That would be very difficult. That's all really interesting. Amy, I also just wanted to ask, speaking of L'Oreal and these sort of enormous personal care companies, they have many products. How many products do you have now? And I guess going forward, what might you roll out that customers aren't necessarily anticipating right now? (laughs) Mary will kill me, but I'll share some stuff with you. So you asked about how many products we have. We have about 15, but it's all hair color related and ancillary products. I'll just give you this hint that right now our business is really focused on women. And so you can imagine that there's a separate gender that may color their hair. Uh, And um, I I didn't say anything more than that, but I think people (laughs) are, I think Alex, I don't know whether the beard's gray or whatever, but I don't know if you have a beard. I'm just, I can't see you. Amy, I can use a lot of help all the way around. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'm not commenting. Your wife is laughing, so I'll just leave it at that. Um, but um, I think that is a market that's just horrific, right? Just for men. I mean, are you kidding me? It's you know filled with chemicals. I think that we're going to blow the doors off of that market. So Amy, I also wanted to ask about marketing. When we last spoke, you were spending a lot on social media. You were beginning to spend more heavily on radio and TV. I'm just wondering what's working and maybe how did that change during the crisis and and why? Yeah. So first of all, I think probably for everybody in D2C businesses, CPAs have come down dramatically. So just in general, this is a good time to be acquiring customers. I think the most interesting thing that's happened for us, and you'll get a kick out of this, Connie, is... Somebody said to me, I love what your product stands for. I'm really scared about doing it. I'm going to order some. Would you or one of your colorists get on FaceTime with me while I color my hair and walk me through it? So we did that for some friends. It went really, really well. And then we just decided, hey, let's run some virtual hair color Zoom parties. The last one we ran, we had 1,100 people sign up and wow. we, had, we had to cut it off at 450. 95% of the people stayed for a full hour. That's incredible. And so we'll be running them every week and we have hundreds of signups. It's been a game changer. The engagement of those people has been incredible. And then they're telling a friend, come to this hair color party. That's terrific. Amy, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure talking to you. Really interesting story. And again, I've, I've heard a lot about your momentum. So it's great to actually get some harder data from you. But I wish you continued success. And I hope we are uh, in touch again in the not too distant future. Thank okay. you so much. That's it. Another week in the books. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great weekend. Great week. And we'll see you back here next week. If you aren't already reading Strictly VC, please do sign up at strictlyvc.com.